Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Mary Ray is a COO and co-founder of My Health Team and has a deep understanding of consumers contributing to her success in growing innovative companies from incubated new ventures at public companies to traditional startups. Drawing from her personal experience with friends and family living with chronic conditions, she empathizes with the loneliness of these experiences, leading her to co-found My Health Team with Eric Peacock to promote social connectedness and support for those in similar circumstances. With My Health Team, they hope to shift healthcare from physician and pharmaceutical-driven to a consumer driven industry. Previously, Mary has held executive positions at Sony and other innovative startups in the field of mobile, digital media, and consumer technology. Mary has received accolades for her leadership in health tech, including the 2019 DTC Innovator Award, the 2021 PM360 Elite COVID Hero Award, and she was a 2021 MM&M Hall of Femme Honoree. In 2021, she was honored by Inc. Magazine's Female Founders 100, the top 100 women entrepreneurs, and she is a graduate of the College of William & Mary School of Business and George Mason University. Currently, she lives in San Francisco, California with her family. Hi, Mary Ray. It's very nice to have you. We're very grateful that you're coming on the podcast to talk with us. So thank you for being here today. It's great to be here. Thank you so much, Sarah. So can you tell us a bit about your journey to how you got to where you are with regards to your path to entrepreneurship? So it started for me about 20 years ago or more uh, in the consumer tech space. And I had started with a company called Third Age Media, and that's where I got my first taste of startup life. And it was amazing. I was empowered to move really fast, to fail and to figure things out and to work with so many amazing people. And, and since then I've had the entrepreneurial bug. And I also need to add that growing up, I had a chance to actually watch my mom in action. She had created a bunch of different business ventures and so forth, and really taught me the importance of rolling with ambiguity prepping for opportunity and also committing all I had into anything I believed in. So, you know, there's a little bit of nurture there, but also some of those opportunities that came my way to start different companies and that sort of thing shaped my entrepreneurial path to today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And so you're recognized as an industry product innovator and digital crusader. Can you tell us a bit about the experiences you've worked on prior to starting my health team? So I've worked for big old companies like Sony Pictures Entertainment, IAC, and um, for smaller companies, like I mentioned, Third Age Media, but also, I don't know if you've heard of Surfline, it's a surfing company that's very niche for surfers. And no matter how big or small, the most common experience I love the most was really understanding the consumer. Like I'm not a surfer and third age media was targeting baby boomers. And I was in my twenties at the time. So it wasn't about what I thought. It wasn't the me, 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 I opera. It was really listening to our audience and studying their behavior identifying what their needs were from a human-centered design approach, and then trying to create products that would fit that need. And at the end of the day, it's really all about falling in love with the problems and 
if you can do that, the whole process of failing and iterating, optimizing is all going to be more fun because you're going to try to uncover what really works and not rest on your laurels. So I really believe at the end of the day, if you can use technology to solve problems, you might be able to bring a sort of understanding and empathy to the people who could benefit from the technology and, and solutions you bring to the table. And so to get kind of more specific, I guess, how do you go about understanding what the consumer wants or needs? Well, I mean, there, there are various approaches that people have, right? From basic interviews, which is how we did, how we started up with my health team, starting with scores and scores of interviews with people who actually had chronic conditions to doing market research, competitive analysis, and understanding the lay of the land of what is out there to serve um, this audience, doing sort of uh, overview of what does that person consume every day, what consumes their day, and trying to understand where the biggest pain points are. So it is a lot of kind of pulling together and synthesizing what the consumers are really trying to show you sometimes tell you so what they say may not always be what they want and need and piecing it together can you tell us a bit about what my health team is and kind of what your motivation was for founding it originally this idea came about because we saw an opportunity the chronic condition population as a whole is really underserved. And with one in two Americans living with a chronic condition, that was the opportunity. That's 150 million people right there. And so what we did was look at what the need was in general. And when we were interviewing people, like I said, and just to start, what what is the need? We were finding that um, listservs, forums, all these sorts of things were not really as useful as, as um, you would think. In fact, it was sort of like a uh, fairly poor user experience when one's first diagnosed with a condition. What we do at my health teams is actually build social networks to foster meaningful, meaningful connections with people who have chronic conditions, other people like you, as well as provide trusted information that is medically reviewed by doctors. So people can come to their appointments, come to decisions with a more informed point of view. And we've been doing the social networking part for 10 years, but most recently in the past three to four years, really been focused on um, quality information, trusted information um, in this world where there's a lot of misinformation. And so by bringing those two things together, we've found that it served those living with a chronic condition much better than what was ever there before. The, the motivation went deeper, honestly, when you just start realizing your own friends and family who are impacted by it. And so there isn't a day that goes by where somebody from the community isn't reaching out to us and saying, thank you so much for what you've done. And I'll I'll say too, that we want to do better and we want to do more. And right now with 42 conditions that we're already in, it's basically 42 social networks with articles and content for those conditions. We want to, we want to be able to serve those particular communities more effectively as well. Can you describe one of these social networks and how it works? Sure. Let's see. I mean, we have conditions like autoimmune conditions, conditions in oncology, neurology, but my MS team is 
a, is a great example. It was our third social network. And if diagnosed, you may come to the social network and kind of register and sign up and say, you know, to what degree the, the disease has impacted you, you're diagnosed with it, or you're caring for somebody with it. And usually what brings you to this is maybe your neurologist has recommended you to my MS team. And by the way, just as a sidebar, one in seven people in America diagnosed with MS are on my MS team, which is one of our social networks. And it's a place where you join and there's an activity feed. It's like a typical social media platform where there's a feed where people are contributing, you know, how their day's going, post photos, videos, whatever. You can also access resources and information. We host a live events at times. So I have done a series with Dr. Aaron Boster. Um, we'll do a live event and it'll be pre-recorded and people can watch that later. So it, we have a whole range of content that people can access. But if you're there for connection and you're newly diagnosed, you may not know exactly where to start. So some people will just read and just see the feed as a place of perspective. Wow. That's how that person's getting through it or validation. I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not the only one feeling so much fatigue from this pandemic or just getting up in the morning or switching meds or whatever it may be. And so that's a pretty incredible thing right now for my MS team. And in fact, one really fast fact is that on the English speaking internet, we have the most conversations about MS in English. So um, it's been it's been pretty remarkable to see the sort of themes that come up from different folks in the community. And we actually have a research team. So what we try to do is bring back to all of the users some of the patterns and research and themes that we're seeing. And that just further reinforces that folks aren't alone and, and they're here in it together. Yeah, that's great. So obviously there's a lot of benefit of having social connections, especially if you're diagnosed with something, you're kind of overwhelmed and it's nice to have those connections. What are the differences maybe between in-person versus virtual communications? Well, I think look at us right now talking over Zoom in this pandemic, it's become crystal clear that maybe the IRL in real life may not be as different, um, you know, with online. But I think the key differences are accessibility. Mm-hmm. as well as immediacy. So when I think about any any company that is trying to deliver the sort of level of, of connection that we're trying to deliver to individuals, it becomes increasingly important to pay attention to what the trends are in consumer behavior. And one of them is people wanting things now. Mm-hmm. In real life, going to a patient support group that happens once a month, uh, let's say it's UCSF here in San Francisco, maybe that one day you're not going to be able to make it. And also maybe you need it now, you know, Th- that's just one simple example. So the accessibility and immediacy is pretty important. Another thing I had already mentioned is in real life and online relationships, there are over 3 million people who uh, are members across our 42 social networks. And I guarantee you, not all of them have met. (laughs) And yet 
we've had a couple of marriages that have happened. I'm not saying we're a dating site by any means, but <laughs> through connections, people who have never even met in person who feel so akin to each other. And that, that says a lot in terms of what are people sharing? They're sharing more than just the burden of the disease that they have. They're sharing real, maybe challenges they're having with friends and family, maybe just how generally they're doing and adapting with the condition and, and, and life and so forth. So I think another thing is the sort of immediate feedback. So that is something that online can do. I mean, being in person is wonderful. So we're together, like you're giving me immediate feedback. And I know this is more on a podcast, but I can see you. I can see you're reacting to me. I can see that you're understanding what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there is something to in any of the social networks that exist is sort of like, like, like hug, hug, hug. Well, we have hugs (laughs) or, you know, comment here and there. It doesn't just have to be between one person. It can be between multiple people. And that does a lot for people who really do feel alienated. And then, you know, there's also that bit about information. So sometimes if um, when you think about the difference between in real life, say with having access to your doctor, you may not be able to talk to your doctor, maybe slammed, right? So I think with us, when we bring, you know, the foremost experts in a given condition um, to be able to answer the most commonly asked questions that actually drill down for those living with MS, not just general, anything you can Google, but specifically like, okay, leg spasms or this bump that you have under your skin in reaction to whatever. And that, you know, we bring doctors to the table who are experts and able to address it. We increase access that way as well. So I think those are pretty obvious differences, but I'm glad you asked it because it's not always apparent. Yeah. And how do you create this sense of community online? And how do you create this platform that people trust and are able to kind of speak openly about personal things that are going on in their life? So there's the technology part of it and there's the people part of it. And the black box piece is how the people connect around the technology. So I could happily say, everybody copy our technology please do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you know, the audience. Okay. So the audience is the people living with the condition now piece it together. That's, that's not the recipe, right? It's really about how folks are building trust within the community relying on the platform to trust the platform, to trust the people behind the platform to ensure a safe judgment free environment. Mm -hmm. And not all platforms do that or offer that. Not a lot of people feel safe on Twitter, for example, or Facebook for that matter. So what we do is we start with the belief that your data is important to us and the privacy around your personal information is critical. Mm -hmm. So we establish that right up front. We work with individual groups, perhaps in a given social network where we might launch and work with specific patient support groups that might bring on their individuals who have access to evidence-based care and therefore sort of set the tone. So our first, say, 50 to 1,000 people, depending on how rare the condition, mm-hmm. set the tone of this is how we talk to each other. And in fact, you know, if, if people are used to being on Reddit, for example, this is now I'm giving a little bit more of an understanding of like, do you know what your folks consume? Do you know what they expect coming in? If you're coming from Reddit, you might be ready to just defend everything you say. Mm-hmm. You might be ready just to get into an argument. And what we do is we try to coach people and individuals, and it's rare, but coach folks who may 
get a little distracted and want to proselytize, want to sell something, want to do whatever, because it's in their heart. They believe this is the right thing to do. You should totally do this. It worked for me. And by investing that time and energy, whether it's through our our community product managers who respond to our community who says, hey, this post doesn't seem appropriate or this individual doesn't seem like they're really kind of, you know, in the spirit of judgment-free, drama-free support, then we'll work behind the scenes to help that individual as well. We also have programmatic ways from a technological standpoint to kind of catch things in advance to help people like, did you know when you're writing in all caps, it sounds like you're shouting. (laughs) It's just before they simply post something. So those are kind of like the housekeeping of how we kind of set it up, but a lot goes into that setup. And then once we launch a social network, which we did recently with my COVID team, mm-hmm. we get individuals who really appreciate that tone, how the other individuals show up as well for them. And it then, then falls into place. I know it seems like so simple and, and we've told people this before too. And and we don't moderate. So I think people have a tendency who want to just control the conversation. We don't have a moderator controlling the conversation because we feel everyone has equal say in basically how they're experiencing life with a given condition. How do you recruit participants or kind of get people to start engaging with the community? So it's like for anything, when you're trying to recruit or market to folks or individuals is sort of understanding where your target audience is, like, where are they, period? What do they use every day? And can you be there? right in front of them for that. And so we recruit in the typical areas that you would expect. I'd mentioned sometimes support groups will work with nonprofits at times to kind of get things started sort of as, as to prime the pump, so to speak, to get the conversations going. But we might do certain partnerships with different individuals who have access to a lot of other people with a given condition, but they don't have a platform. And um, we get the word out that way. So there are various ways one can do it, but I think it's just kind of marketing 101. Where is this audience? Can you be there in front of them with the right message? And I think it's 70, 75% knowing your target audience and then putting the right value proposition, which in our case is, hey, you're not alone connect with others for meaningful connections here or trusted information. Mm -hmm. And what we're finding is we have a range of types of users, those who are info seekers, let's say like, just, I just want the latest treatments. I just want to know, right. Am I reading enough? Am I learning enough? And then the other folks on the other end of the spectrum who are really just looking for that social bit, right? Like, yeah, I've read this, or I'm not really concerned about that. I get what I need for my doctor. I just need somebody who understands somebody who actually has been in my shoes and that's the social network part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so how do you scale to different communities and like different chronic conditions? And I think to even different countries. How we do that. So we're very U.S. centric. We don't make any bones about it. It's U.S. English, so to speak, you know, and even though we're in the UK, we're in 13 countries and we're so so by being US centric, that's how we're scaling, right? We're not internationalizing fully, right? By culture, by language in that way. But the other thing we're able to do is we have a robust platform, a full stack platform where we're able to appeal to an audience and it scales pretty straightforwardly. The 
the way the activity feed is, and if you use any social network, you'll understand this too. It's like, you could have millions and millions of people on it and it scales. It's just really about that personalized user experience when they come there. So that they feel like it's themselves an intimate experience with other conversations that they're witnessing or articles that they're engaging with. So how, how do we, I think go deeper is a question I'm always concerned about. It's like, you know, with one in seven people diagnosed with MS and my MS team, how can we get that in other social networks? And that really is about us making sure that we are finding individuals at the time that they need us, whether that be in the early stages of their journey, forget it's the pre-diagnosis stage where they, they've been misdiagnosed or they're on their way to getting an official diagnosis for insurance purposes to they've been a veteran for years and they're just looking to give back. And how do you decide which team to start with and which team to build out next? In the early days, it was pretty straightforward. We were looking for you know, chronic conditions from a size perspective, right? Like how many people are impacted every year? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, are there treatments available for people to talk to their doctor about? And also, is there a knowledge gap that exists that would require people to kind of connect with each other or motivate them to really connect with one another? And as we've grown, it's been more of just, we're getting more into rare conditions now. The other factor is mortality. So I will tell you several years ago, we were not going to go into ovarian and lung cancer, but we are now. And that has been a testament to how far some of the research has come in treating the conditions and diagnosing the conditions earlier. But I'll tell you, you know, several years ago, we weren't sure about that just because of the mortality rates for those living with the condition, but that has been a factor. So for the 42 social networks that we're in right now, I mean, that serves 90% of the addressable market already of those living with a chronic condition. So it's likely that if you have a chronic condition, we have one of your social networks. The 10% that we're not in are going to be super rare conditions or ones that have really high mortality rates. what's something that surprised you when you've been building out these social networks? How candid people are and how much of the unvarnished truth of living with the condition people share. One example is a woman on my VC team who, after going through treatment, um, she was early, it was, she was like 32. She shared an ultrasound of her eight week old baby on the social network before sharing it with her mother. And again, so you're talking a social network where you don't necessarily know folks, but she felt such a connection to everybody that she (laughs) shared that and shared the story of her doing the reveal to her mother. So clearly she, I mean, I know for a fact, we got to know each other through the platform. She didn't post it anywhere else. It was only on my BC team where she felt like she could share that. That was surprising to me. It was surprising to me that people got married. It was surprising to me that there were these two women who were, they have, I'm using breast cancer example, but one was in Chicago, one was in New York or Long Island. And they were both diagnosed at the same time. They both married their high school sweethearts. They both had kids the same age and they felt like BFF soulmates. And what I was surprised was the one in Chicago flew to surprise the one in New York at a breast cancer walk. This is several years ago. 
and filmed it and put it on my BC team. So it's just one of those things where like, wow, like, or, or then when, when 20 something women got together, uh, oh, I should use MS as I'm still using breast cancer because they're just fresh in my brain, but for MS, there've been get togethers as well. People have used the platform to go on fantasy trips together. So they'll do a post like, okay, everybody, we're going to pretend that we're going to this place together. What are we going to do first? I mean, those are kind of interesting. Like I've never seen that happen before, but there's so many surprises. I, I could go on and on. I mean, honestly, it's like if I could have foreseen all the things that would have happened, there's no way I could have designed a product to yield those results. It was just how people came to the table with what they needed. Yeah, no, it definitely shows and how people are connecting online and that it's possible. Those are great stories. Thank you for sharing them. And so how do you see this platform integrating maybe with the more healthcare delivery in hospitals or clinics? We're still looking at that. I think in the, in the most short term, it's through nurse navigators and doctors and providers who talk about us. And, and some have some folks have wanted to put us into the EHR just as a, as a reference for their patients. They can pull it up and say, hey, this person needs more social connection, whatever, or, or this is a good reference source for this person to learn more about psoriasis treatments or something. So that's the quick of it. And again, I I think if we can get more integrated from that, what that person receives that diagnosis, which at the oncology is a little bit easier. It's kind of like they have it more dialed in as to like, this is the protocol we follow. I think we've been involved in like the, you've been diagnosed folder, right? But for the other conditions, it's to be determined. I think a lot of it is word of mouth from those who have been diagnosed, just sharing with other people, other support groups that they've been in or private pages they've been on. So a more integrated platform, I'm not sure where we'll be with that, but there are lots of conversations that we have with various partners and we're always interested in exploring that. Mm-hmm. And what do you see as the future of my health team? To talk about that, I, I will start with saying, again, we started as a social network platform and we've grown from serving those who need connection, living with a chronic condition to those who are seeking more information and it's just building more toward perhaps there are other services that we would help provide and plug people into. Mm-hmm. So maybe for mental health support, um, it could be, you know, a diagnosis level, it's endless because once people find us and we move along the continuum of what they may need from us, it it seems to go from connection information to additional services that seem obvious. And I mean, there's a myriad of things that could be set up for that and plug into. Yeah, that's definitely, it's very exciting. There's a lot to do. So shifting gears a little bit to how you built a company, can you tell us about how you and your co-founder, Eric, came together and how you two leveraged your complementary skill sets to build my health team? Yes. So Eric and I met at IAC and it's been really collaborative from day one. And so I was always focused on the consumer experience and building a great product for members that really serve the members. And Eric's been more focused on sort of developing the business and partnership relationships where we could, you know, actually continue to do good by doing well financially because mm-hmm. we are not a nonprofit, right? And so um, to, together now we have I don't know, over 80 people and we have been rapidly evolving this sort of digital health ecosystem that we've been really chipping away at for, for a while now. And it's been, it's been an amazing ride. And how have you built your team? What qualities do you look for when you hire people? 
I look for folks who share our company values and someone that I could see working with in a different organization altogether because of some typical traits that they may have. And, and that is the following, this kind of reflects our values. Someone who can anticipate, and these are all people who, by the way, who are also successful at the company who tend to uh, demonstrate these things. Someone who anticipates they take initiative, think and act like an owner, which is actually not that common. Those who have a growth mindset, because again, when you're in a startup, it's like, there's a lot of ambiguity. You have to be willing to embrace and lean into that. Those who are collaborative. I mean, that's how, how Eric and I started is from a, a sense of collaboration and those who embrace the value of like a diverse, equitable and inclusive, as well as a culture of belonging sort of environment. The last piece is something that we realized in the past couple of years that we really want to articulate really clearly in our values, which we do. And I think what we've been finding is when folks embrace all those values that I just kind of described, they come and they shape our culture because they have different experiences. You know, you, you can have different experiences and still share the same values. And these 80 people have really shaped this culture of my health team today. What has been your experience fundraising as a female founder? And do you have any advice to others pitching to investors? Positive. It's been positive for me. I will say that the investors were basically aligned and believed in what we do and what we're doing for, for those living with a chronic condition. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. They've shared our vision and they've believed in us. And when I was eight months, eight and a half months pregnant, I think we were closing our series A round, if that tells you anything about that. The advice I have is, uh, is, is a little prescriptive, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. I say this to a lot of people, but you want to understand the thesis of your investors. If you know what I mean by that, which is like, they, they, they've raised a fund mm -hmm. and this is, they have a thesis of, we believe these types of companies will do well for this fund. We want to invest in that kind of company. Try to find that out as soon as you can before taking meetings or having, getting your hopes up and then align with those investors whose thesis you believe you fit into. Mm -hmm. It's not a sort of, let's just toss all the seeds out there and hope something sticks, you know, or, or something will grow from that. It's like, no, you got to do a little research. It'll save you a lot of time. And not everyone calls you back. There's going to be a lot of no's for every no, by the way, you should use it as an opportunity because if they're even telling, you no, that's great. You should then be asking for an intro to two or three investors from that person that they think might be better aligned for the opportunity. And you'll be surprised. I mean, more people than not will want to help you because they're not going to fund you necessarily. Mm -hmm. And it'll go a long way to just building up your network, especially if you don't have a strong one. I think it also, it just makes it easier for the conversation to, instead of cold calls or anything like that, it just, it just makes it easier. I know that sounds very practical, but I think it's even better if you know in advance with preparing for the ask of, of knowing, I know that Jim is connected to Becca. If maybe he can make an intro, regardless of how this meeting goes out, that would be great because an intro is, is incredibly valuable. Um, and also the last thing I'll say is this is, I think people have different points of view about it, but it's almost like having a vision board, but don't have a vision board, draft up your own term sheet. <laughs> like what would be your vision of a term sheet? And um, just to kind of translate that I don't put on Pinterest, but just sort of think about it that way. That's great advice. Thank you for that. And so now that my health team is kind of no longer a startup, but continuing to grow, how has your role changed and how's the focus or goals of the company shifted? 
the goals have remained the same, having an engaged community, right? People who are really using the product, attracting and growing our audience and, and growing our revenue. Those are pretty key metrics that we've had. We've built such a strong team with really effective leaders across all the different functions, which means that I can now shift from startup mode to scale up mode. And it's given me more opportunity and given us more opportunities to think about what, where are the new growth areas? As we talked about earlier, when you asked me like, where else is this going? So I get to focus more on that now too. And going back to, okay, how can we innovate? How can we not rest on our laurels? Are there new problems we're trying to solve or some problems that we completely overlooked and we need to go back and see if we can address them again? That's great. So now I want to ask about your background in consumer marketing and product development. I know we discussed a little bit earlier, but can you tell tell me a little bit what skills you've learned from your prior experiences and how you've used them to your current entrepreneurial pursuits? Yeah. So I would say I've become more practiced at observing general consumer behavior. And I would say that this is pretty important no matter what business you're in. If you're enhancing a product or building a company from the ground up, that's you got to know who you're serving. Um, a big one that I think I learned sooner and that I apply all the time, and I try to share this with others too, is meeting the consumer where they are versus forcing them and educating them. No, 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 you come along here. This is how you use our product. It's like, no, where where are people? If they're used to using a mobile app uh, off a browser or they're, they're doing something a certain way, why make it harder? Just ride that. I think those are some important takeaways that maybe I would have taken for granted before, you know, everything I learned from my health team and, and my 20 years experience in general around product dev and marketing. I also think that, bringing people together with different experiences and perspectives is really a strength of ours and my health team. And it's important for uh, all the different communities that we serve. And so we're actively seeking and recruiting diverse points of view, professional experience, various, maybe non-traditional educational experience and personal lived experience to more effectively serve our communities. And You obviously have a lot of experience launching new products. What are some key decisions you've had to have made to have a successful launch? Remember that launching anything is just a point in time, okay? And so it's important and and you should celebrate a launch, but that it's, you're constantly testing and iterating. And I feel that if you're able to set up an environment where the cadence of how quickly you can test, learn and iterate and improve is faster and faster and faster, you'll become better sooner. Um, if the environment isn't set up that way and you're having to be relying on, oh, we have to wait two months for data or whatever. I mean, that's an, that's like direct mail marketing or something, but you know, um, it's really about that. And you want to be able to set yourself up to know what your key performance metrics are, Mm -hmm. right? Your key performance indicators, right? What are your KPIs and make sure that the right ones that are going to help move the business along. And like I mentioned to you before, it's like for us, it's, are we able to keep the lights on the revenue and are people engaged with what we're building? Are, Are they coming back daily, weekly, monthly? Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, so what might be some common mistakes you've seen in this process? This isn't an order of priority or anything or importance, but I will say these are the probably the most common things where people kind of throw money out the window, but people outsourcing to agencies too soon. 
before they learn themselves what may be working or not working, getting kind of a core understanding, not having the right KPIs. I just talked about that. Being over-reliant on a marketing channel or a source where you get your potential audience. And this is, this is going to sound very specific, but maybe spending money on something because an investor said, Hey, maybe you should have a billboard or maybe you should do radio and just doing it to please the investor. I think it's a common mistake. It's like you've been funded. It doesn't mean that you have to follow everything. In fact, you should be informing your board and having a good relationship with your board. This is a final point. Have a relationship with your board in such a way that they know that you're asking yourself the hard questions. Like, this is something I'm concerned about. I think that we might be over-reliant on this channel. So we're going to try to do this just, just to kind of get ahead of things. But at the same time, you do want feedback as well. But that, that I have seen people kind of jump, <laughs> jump sometimes to the, the latest, greatest be in the bonnet. Well, thank you for all this advice. Before we wrap up, I want to do a lightning round with you. Who are other female founders who you look up to? Okay. I have a few. Katerina Fake, who founded Flickr, right? She's amazing. If you ever just look for her, I, I recommend this to every female founder, research her. I think she has a podcast, but she's been interviewed so much. And I think she's so insightful and she has so much experience. Arlen Hamilton, who I believe was on this podcast, I think she's doing incredible things backstage capital, and it really illustrates the importance of giving back. There's also Amy Arrett, who's the founder of Madison Reed. She's a perfect example of startup to scale. She's she's in the process of scaling right now. And then one final person is Sarah Nam. She is one of the co-founders of Libra Software. So it's a sort of talent analytics platform, sort of software as a service. Um, I got to meet her speaking to some women at uh, Stanford, the Graduate School of Business down there, where she was on the panel talking about this is before it became such a popular thing, but you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, but using a platform to get more companies there. I'm pretty incredible. That's amazing. And lastly, what's the best piece of career advice you've ever received? So the career advice was never burn bridges, but I kind of flip it to a positive, which is always be connecting (laughs) because you really do rely on your network to bring you through various situations, whether it's funding or just tapping your network for their own talent and bringing them into the company when maybe it's hard to recruit. And in this current environment, for those particularly in the digital tech space, it's it's very hard to recruit the best talent. And I mean, we're fortunate because at my health team, we have such a strong mission and people are really drawn to companies with a strong mission, but it is very competitive. So sometimes it's really just relying on your community of people that you know. And so to me, I I believe it's always be connecting, always be recruiting. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at TheaHC, and on our website at TheaHC.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing producer, Sarah Wetzler, and audio editors, Ellie Park, Asim Jane, Nikita Gupta, and Katie Donahue. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting Thea by visiting our website, theahc.org, to donate.